Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. I have a portion of that chapter on the outline for you in the insert. If you need the Pew Bible, it's 588. If you open up to 588, all of chapter 28 appears there before you. I want you to have this open, whatever form you have, your electronic form, whatever it may be, so that you can follow with me. There are uh, several verses in this beautiful chapter, as we have been seeing, walking through this prophecy. Now, we've come to a new section, as uh, the outliner has outlined for us, this book. The first 12 chapters really introduce us to the prophet Isaiah himself, his commissioning. Um, We see glimpses of the messianic hope in chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11. Then we go into Israel's difficulty from 13 all the way to 27. All these chapters are related to the incoming judgment of God upon Israel in the north. Remember Israel, one nation split in two. The north, uh, Samaria is the capital of Ephraim as it's called, Israel. Then there's Judah with Jerusalem as the capital. But the northern kingdom almost immediately capitulated to the nations around. Didn't even bother asking God for help, you might say. Immediately formed alliances with other nations, taking on uh, all sorts of obligations, religious and philosophical, devotion to other gods. And so God was bringing judgment. And this is what we read in 13 to 27, how Assyria will be the first nation to bring this judgment and oppression. But in those chapters, we also find out that Israel won't be the only ones who have this hardship brought upon them. For them, it'll be temporary discipline. For the nations, they will go out of existence. Uh, the Moabites will be no more. Uh, the, kings, the kingdom of Assyria will rise and fall. Another kingdom will take its place. And oracles against these nations and about God's power and purpose come before us. Now, starting at chapter 28, the passage I begin to read today, we have a shift. The the prophet turns from the northern kingdom, which is all but taken by Assyria by the time of its writing, shifts to the southern kingdom. And you're going to hear a repeated message to the south, Judah. And you're going to feel a little bit like it's deja vu all over again. You're going to be like, what is going on? This is, they're doing the same thing. Did they not just see what the north did in trying to make alliances with other nations? Why don't they trust God? And you'll get a little bit of that feel like I've read this before. But you're going to see a slightly different take now as Hezekiah becomes the king during the time that Isaiah is prophesying. So follow as I read God's word as we begin really a new section. The first six verses refer to Israel in the north. And then starting in verse 7, the shift is towards the south. I'll start at verse 5, but we'll walk through all the verses together at some point. Hear God's holy and inspired word. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Now turning to the south, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach? 
teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the, from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said we made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we opened our service with a call from Psalm 118 that declared your marvelous work of salvation for us. In that passage, you forecasted the work of Christ to build his church upon himself, the cornerstone. Now, we read in Isaiah that despite the discipline of Israel under Assyria, despite the wavering now of Judah towards a similar dependence only in Egypt instead of you, despite the chaos and the turmoil of the times, you once again renewed your pledge to send the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, in whom we trust and are therefore not ashamed. Thank you for your holy word, for there are many in our midst who are in times of turmoil and chaos. This is exactly what we need today and every day. Amen. This is an amazing passage that introduces a motif that is throughout Scripture. One of the most important motifs or themes for all Christians who love the Bible to know. The motif of the cornerstone. We'll come to that in a bit. This has to do with the cornerstone that makes up a foundation of a building. I've shared this with you before, but it's always amazing to me as I think back at my time in downtown Chicago for four years, living uh, just 10 blocks in front of what was the Sears Tower at that time, watching buildings be taken down and new ones being built up. I mean, real estate's a premium in the city. And you would see huge, huge holes be built where these, or dug where these buildings were taken down in preparation for a bigger building to go up. And it got to where you saw enough of this to recognize from the 17th story of our dorm, you could see these holes in the city. And they were massive. I mean, several stories down. You could tell by the size of them how big a building would go above it. Uh, how much of a hole there was here, a smaller one there. Oh, that building's probably going to be a, an apartment building 30 or 40 stories high. 
That's got to be a skyscraper. Look at how big it is. It's almost a city block taken up in construction of this massive, massive pit. They're ready to make the foundation in. And that foundation has to be super, super strong so it can hold a building that sticks up over the earth and into the wind and to all the elements and all the things that would come up against it. So when people are up in the 50, 60, 70th floor, they wouldn't feel it shaking. I mean, the engineers had a certain sway built into it, but you can't feel it when you're in it because it's strong and the foundation is firm and you know that it's not going to topple over when the stuff comes up against it. You look out over at Lake Michigan and you see the winds coming in, the snow coming in, and there's a feeling of strength as you look at that ops, out that observation deck and you just know that this thing has been engineered well and the foundation is strong and sure and it all starts there. And what's built above it is dependent on what's built below it so they can withstand the turmoil, the tumult, all the stuff that will come its way. This is the picture that God uses consistently through Scripture to describe his people, the church that we are a, living, a building of living stones that he's building. And he's building it on a foundation, and the foundation is Jesus. And because the foundation is so firm, even though chaos and turmoil and unraveling and disarray will hit us, we'll stay firm as the church, though battered on the outside, we'll stay firm because of the foundation. And this is something we need to hear on a regular basis as individuals dealing with turmoil in your life, commotion in your life, And it's true for us as a church, the people of God. This is a persistent theme that comes up over and over again. And in the midst of a chaotic picture of judgment and oppression and and imperialism against the people of God, threats of more oppression to come, all this swirling commotion, and God speaks a word of peace, a word of foundation in the middle that connects to all the other pictures of this spiritual building that God is building that we see in Scripture. No matter how chaotic this world seems to be, we can be sure of God's firm rule through Christ, and then in light of that, we can trust, we can rest. There can be an experience of peace in the midst of chaos around us because of the foundation. Now, we get the sense of chaos in many of these passages that we're reading in Isaiah because God has brought the oppressing hand of Assyria, it means all sorts of disarray for the people who lived in Israel. This was not a peaceful takeover. This was hostile. People were uh, exiled away from their homeland, property taken, people killed, people uh, enslaved. All sorts of terrible things happened when Assyria came upon the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom's watching it happen. They're getting nervous. They're starting, instead of looking to God, they're looking south to Egypt to have them help. I mean, after what they've just seen, go through with the north and all their alliances with nations who could not help and were enemies to God, Judah has the idea that maybe Egypt can help us. And so now God is threatening Judah with the same things. Haven't you learned, Judah, essentially, is what he says. Well, in the midst of this, there's a faithful remnant, people who want to trust God, but they're caught up in the tumult. They're caught up in the turmoil. So it could be that you bring it upon yourself or it's brought upon you. But chaos is the seeming reality of our lives. We know God works behind all things and is in control of all things, but if I did a raise of hands, how many people feel like your life is chaos right now? How many people feel turmoil or tumult or commotion or disarray or an unraveling? Many of you raise your hands because it's a sense of life that we get that things are out of control. It feels that way sometimes. This is why we come back to God's Word. That's why we come to worship on a regular basis, to be grounded again, to lay hold of the anchor once again, to see the foundation we're on. 
But the sense of chaos is described vividly throughout this book. We pick it up again here in chapter 28. Back to verse 1 now of chapter 28. Get a sense of what he's speaking. He's speaking to the northern kingdom. That's Ephraim. In the first six verses are almost like final words to the north. There's not much reference to the north, at least not with this clarity that follows in this book. It's kind of like he's done with them now as Assyria has made its way in. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those who overcome with wine. The the word glorious beauty associated with a drunkard, only a drunkard would think they're glorious. And that's the picture you have of Ephraim in their foolishness. They have forsaken God, and so God has brought them to their just deserts, and he describes them for what they may be actually, but also what they are in their lack of clarity and thinking. It says verse, in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand the Assyrians. The Assyrians have come, and they're exacting vengeance upon the northern kingdom. Verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. If you've ever grown anything in a garden or you've had an apple tree and that first apple that shows up or a fig tree like it says here or an apricot tree, the first bit of fruit after a long season of dormancy, it shows up and you grab it without thinking and you eat it or you share it. The first tomato on the vine and it's gone as fast as it appears. So long to get there, but then it's gone in an instant. And that's what Ephraim was like after God's hand of judgment came upon. The chaos, though, that this uh, fails to mention that would have been true of anybody's life who's living at this time, how fast things had moved in a bad direction. The life of security and ease was changing in an instant, everything unraveling under the discipline of God. Verse 5, there's a, a mention of the remnant that still existed. Even in the north, there are those who did believe but were caught up in this tumult. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Even though God's judging, God's glory will be known to those who trust him, even in the midst of judgment, because they see his name vindicated. Verse 6, in a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and a strength of those, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Ephraim was being lost to Assyria, a total unraveling nationally and socially. All the clever maneuvers of the northern king to make alliances with pagan nations and cities, they were failing. Just as God had warned and things came undone. Of course, everything is under the sovereign hand of God and the control of God, but to experience living in those times would have been as chaotic as one could imagine. Verse 7 shifts now to a warning, a warning to Judah now. Much of the same language as they are negotiating a, tree, uh, a treaty with Egypt for safety. Judah, all that's left of God's visible kingdom on earth, and they're trying to make a treaty with a pagan nation. Egypt of all places, the place that God historically saved them from. 
Now he's, they're going back, despite the retelling of the Exodus, over and over, every generation, they're going to go back to Egypt for help. They're not thinking straight either. And so the description of the south comes before us in verse 7. These, the south, also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. Okay, it's not just the people. The priest and the prophet, they still have the temple there. They, the leaders, are also thinking with no clarity. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. They can't do their job. They can't fulfill their ministry. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. These tables of fellowship, no space because of the filth between each other. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? No one's even there to listen, even if they were thinking straight. Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast, little children, can they be the ones who learn? For it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Two things are, two ideas are, are transmitted to us here. One, they're talking and nobody's listening. They're giving God's word over and it's heaping upon judgment. Precept upon precept. Is the word is exposed and people don't listen. That brings judgment when they don't listen. And here it's coming, but they're not hearing. But it's also just like saying blah, 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 blah. God's word, blah, blah, they don't hear anything. It's just gibberish. Verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to this people. In other words, he's going to bring another foreign oppressor upon Judah, just like he did with Israel, and they're going to show them what God's will is. Even though they've got exposure to the word of God, it will take bringing in a foreign oppressor, oppressor to know the will of God. Verse 12, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. So he's saying through his word that there's rest in him. We've seen it already. He's revealed it in other parts of this book so far. But here, they refuse that rest. It says in verse 12, they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, more and more and more, and they won't listen. And they will, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Their judgment will be upon themselves if they've been exposed to the revelation of God, but they've ignored it. God's given this consistent offer of grace to Israel first and now to Judah. We've even seen God give grace to the foreign oppressors if they would just turn to him. Life this side of the fall, after sin entered, and before perfection and glory, it can feel chaotic and out of control, and yes, they brought it upon themselves. But not everyone's godless here. Not everyone uh, lacks true devotion to God, but they're still caught up in the chaos of it all. Life can feel like it's going too fast, things are unraveling, and that's the case. Confusion, disarray, disorder, all of it. You know, recently this week, I had trouble sleeping a couple nights, so I got Netflix out, and I watched a few movies. One I'd never seen, uh, even though I kept tell- people kept telling me I should see, Fargo. And then another one uh, was called Lorenzo's Oil, which I've seen, which is a good one. Uh, really, if I wanted to go to sleep, I should have just watched Downton Abbey. But instead, I <laughs> watched these movies, and I got engaged and stayed up watching. I mean, I've been out in five minutes, the first English accent. But instead, here I am watching Fargo. 
And you want to talk about a dark movie with just complete disarray and chaos developing in a seemingly normal middle-class guy's life. He's this, he's this car salesman in Minnesota somewhere, and he gets himself in all sorts of financial duress, assumedly because he made a bunch of bad choices. And instead of making good choices to get out of it, he concocts crazy ideas to get rich quick schemes. Uh, they're not working, and his life is, is chaos, and bills are coming due. And you just get this feel. Everyone can relate with that a bit of this chaos that life is bringing. And he makes it worse because he comes up with a plan to have his own wife kidnapped and his rich father-in-law, who loves his daughter, surely he'll pay the ransom to someone he hires, a third party, and then he'll get out of his financial duress. Great idea, right? And it's a believable movie, the way it's portrayed. It really feels like it could happen. And that's what gives you the sense of chaos about life. And of course, things completely unravel. People get killed. It gets worse and worse, and his life comes completely to nothing. It's a terrible feeling you leave after you've seen this thing. But that's what life is like for so many people because they bring upon themselves this chaos, this tumult that comes to them. But the other movie gave me a similar feeling throughout it, but it wasn't because it was the fault of the family. There was a little boy who was sick with a disease he didn't know much about. And so the father and the mother knew they were in desperate straits because he was declining so quickly. And you got this feeling of a lack of control when health issues like that arise, and you feel like there are no answers, or whatever the problem might be that comes upon you that you didn't bring, but it just come upon you. And this is true for this family. And it turns out to be a neat story of how, because they're so, they're, their love for their son, they drive towards finding a cure or a treatment, and a treatment develops out of it, and other children are able to be treated. Their son only partially, but he is restored a bit, and a, a little bit of control seems to come back. But in both cases, I thought to myself how chaotic really life is for most people. All of us will go through it. There are times of peace. We look for it. We pray for it. We pray for it because we know it's not usually the norm. There's just things coming at us so fast and so furious. But no matter how chaotic this world seems, what we learn from Scripture over and over again, and I'm convinced that's why we see it so often, is that we can be sure, even in the midst of that feel of chaos, that God is firmly in control. That his rule is real, and it's through Christ and what Christ has accomplished and what Christ is doing seated at his right hand even now. And because of that, we can trust in the midst of the storm that's hitting us. That's the true message that the prophet speaks to the remnant who hear among those who are being judged, and it speaks to us over the generations. And in the middle of this difficult prophecy that shows so much chaos, we come to verses 14 down to 16, which develop for us a picture of that is common through Scripture, and it's a glorious one I hope all of us are very familiar with. Starting at verse 14, we see this cornerstone motif. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. He's fixed on the south now. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. Now, what he's talking about is the treaty they were about to make with Egypt for protection. You see, if you make a treaty with someone other than God, that's a treaty with death. Only God is the Lord of life. The treaty must be with him. The covenant must be with him. If it's with anyone other than God, it's a covenant of death, ultimately. It may feel like immediate security, but it's actually a covenant with death. So he says in verse 15, Because you, Judah, have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, which means the grave, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, which will be whatever nation he brings... When the overwhelming whip passes through it, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. They think they will avoid, he's speaking somewhat sarcastically here, they will avoid 
what happened to the north with an oppressing nation because they've made this covenant. But God calls it what it is. It's a covenant with death. Now, verse 16. God reminds his people in the midst of their rebellion, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. We read here in Isaiah about cornerstone. Now, the first time this imagery appears in Scripture related to a picture of Jesus happens in the text that we use for the call to worship, Psalm 118. Written in 1000 B.C., David wrote, This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. David speaks on our behalf. So the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. So part of a messianic psalm of David in 1000 B.C. becomes a repeated theme and understanding for the people of Israel for the next 300 years before Isaiah comes. So the people would have some concept of the cornerstone foundation motif. It wasn't foreign to them, and it really tied back to the commitment that God made first in the garden when he promised against the devil that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, the devil himself, Jesus, forecasted. And then in Genesis 12, when Abraham's promised to be made a great nation, and then in 2 Samuel 7, when David is promised that there will be the Messiah King who comes, who will always occupy his throne, and in Psalm 118, a celebration of this cornerstone, and now in 700 B.C., Isaiah is writing about, in the midst of the chaos, the cornerstone that he has laid. How does he say it? Past tense. Because when God speaks covenantally, he speaks with a promise, with a commitment, and it is sure. What he has done in the past, pointing to the future, is done. And so the people of God in the Old Testament looked by faith to the Messiah who was to come. And it was counted to them as righteousness. We look back at the finished work, but when God promises Messiah, whoever believes on him is saved. We have a motif that unpacks and unfolds from Scripture at this point that is well worth a brief consideration of in our time. I want everybody to understand this motif because it's so strong in Scripture. And there's a bit of a personal reason it's, I'm passionate about it. I grew up in a church that had a view of a cornerstone that was different. And they used as the passage Matthew 16. Now let me walk you through this cornerstone motif because I think it'll be a blessing to you as you understand what Isaiah is saying. I remember growing up in the Catholic church and they would tell me that Matthew 16 where Jesus was speaking to Peter was a way for understanding the papacy. But with the cornerstone motif that we just briefly started to look at, I want you to see what Scripture is actually saying. And it's powerful, especially in the midst of the chaos that we experience. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to all his disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? He's dealing with everybody calling him different things. And he wants to know, what do the disciples say about him? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter 
the guy that spoke first usually, he replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What was revealed to him? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is it, the Christ, who is forecast in the Old Testament. Everyone knew who the Christ would be, that is, what role he would play, what he would do. Peter of all would know this as a Jew. You are the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right on, Peter, you got it. And I tell you, Peter, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I was told out of context that meant that on Peter the church would be built. And then from Peter the church continues because his succession are the popes and so forth. But the context is his confession about Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Understood is this cornerstone foundation motif among the Jews especially. So let's see what Peter thinks. Well, providentially, Peter writes a book that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 the following. This is Peter. Peter understood exactly what Jesus was saying. His confession is the foundation. His confession is Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 4, And you come to him, he's talking to the people of God, us, You come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Peter is calling you a holy priesthood. Only few of us can appreciate the irony of this. But at any rate, Peter is calling you priests. And you are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, the Apostle Peter says now, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, and it's me. That's not what Peter says. Peter is under no illusion that he is the cornerstone or the foundation or that anything will be built on him personally. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He quotes Isaiah 28.16. What is Isaiah 28.16 saying? He's going to send Christ to be the cornerstone. That's his will. That's what he'll do. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, Peter says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. So Peter rightly understands what Jesus said in Matthew 16 about Jesus, which ties back to what Isaiah says, what all of us need to know, that there is only one foundation, and he's Christ. And that's what holds us against the chaos, whatever it is, however it comes. If this weren't enough, in the greatest sermon that Peter ever preached, at least on record, it happens in Acts chapter 4, Peter, again, we're talking Peter, the one who Jesus said in Matthew 16. Said to him, what was, who am I? Talking to unbelieving Jews at the time who are now convicted because of what had happened, Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Peter absolutely got what Jesus said and professed Jesus as the cornerstone. The cornerstone foundation motif is about the authority of Jesus Christ over the church. The cornerstone foundation motif is about the identity of the church being tied up in Jesus himself. The cornerstone foundation motif of Scripture is about resting upon a foundation that has been laid by Christ himself through his apostles, meaning his word ultimately. Paul picks up the cornerstone foundation motif in his epistles as we'd expect and in several places refers to the same thing. In Romans 9, as it is written, he refers to this passage, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Later to the Ephesians, Paul says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. One might rightly ask after hearing that Ephesians passage, well, is Jesus the cornerstone or the foundation? And the answer is both. Jesus commissions prophets and apostles to bring his revelation. What's their revelation? Jesus. So he commissions prophets and apostles to reveal him. He's the cornerstone, so he keeps them straight. That's what a cornerstone does. So the foundation is Christ himself. And he incorporates the prophets and the apostles in, in giving this message. And that's what is meant by the foundation on the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians, yet again, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, for the hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, back to Isaiah 28, God is promising Messiah King's firm establishment of of his reign, and they can lay hold of that in the midst of the tumult, that it's sure and it's true. And in that day, it will be realized ultimately. For us, reading it right now, we are once again drawn to Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church. Jesus Christ, the King and the Savior of those who believe in him. And anyone who believes in him will not be put to haste. This is the attending point. Look at the last part of verse 16. Of a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste. Believe Trust, rest upon, have faith in. It doesn't mean that they'll be rescued from their immediate tumult, but it means they'll have ultimate rest in him, and they can stand firm through whatever it is. Foundations can, of course, be physical. We've thought of that metaphor. We need a spiritual foundation that is deep and firm and strong, that's trustworthy in Jesus Christ is that foundation. A foundation is what underlies something or supports it. The cornerstone holds that foundation together. Whoever believes will not be in haste. What's your underlying foundation? What will hold you in the chaos of this life? What will hold you when the doctors deliver a bad report? 
What will hold you when finances are exhausted or the market goes further south? When businesses dry up, when your employer who loved you one moment doesn't the next? What will hold you when friends betray or are not around or a spouse leaves or a family member forsakes? What will hold you when suffering comes upon us for faith in Christ? God says, therefore, I have laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone. You can lean upon it. You could rest upon it. A precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not be in haste, will not be disturbed, some versions translated, will not tremble, others will say, will not panic, will not be disappointed, will not be shaken. What's your underlying foundation. Isaiah is saying to a people in the midst of chaos that you can trust God and his precious cornerstone to come, Messiah. The final verses of chapter 28, if you'll look there with me, they contain a commitment on the part of God to make things right ultimately. While he brings discipline, it will be measured, it will be particular, and he is drawing them to repentance. Verse 17, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. So your commitments to other nations, I will wipe them away with this discipline I'll bring. It will be for your own good. It's for measured reasons. Then your covenant with death will be annulled in verse 18. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day, by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. He's giving a similar message to the south as he gave to the north. Despite the treachery of Judah, God will preserve them through discipline. Through the discipline process, they will know that God is true. He'll give them discomfort so they will know that he is real and they'll depend on him. Verse 20. This is what a picture of, of, of discomfort for tall people trying to sleep in a short bed with little, with a short, small bed sheet. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. A miserable night, unrest. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien his work. It's not seen in any other way except for the hand of God. Now therefore, Judah, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong means stronger. You're already bondage for what you've committed to. It'll be worse. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Don't make the Lord's discipline permanent is what the cry is. Be careful what you do next. Verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. And this is a beautiful picture of what the farmer does in comparison to how God disciplines. Verse 24, Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? In other words, does the farmer go to the field in nonstop, 24 hours a day, all year long, plow, tear up the hard ground? No, that's not the purpose of tearing up the hard ground, is it? It's to make it loose so seeds could go in and grow. This is the purpose of God's discipline that he's going to bring to them. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually, does he continually open and harrow this ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, seeds, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? He's careful about exactly what he does after he does the plow work, which is the violent work. 
God will bring fruit from these hard times. God is sure. He is strong. He is constant. Verse 28 and verse 29. Does one crush grain for bread? No. He does not, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who you may feel chaos is coming from. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Even though it seems chaotic, the God who is sovereign is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And even in the midst of this chaos, when we know this, we can be sure of God's firm rule, and we know it comes ultimately through Christ, who is the cornerstone, who he has sent, and he is precious, and we could trust in him. Malcolm Muggeridge was a fascinating character who lived from 1903 to 1990. I did not become acquainted with him until later, recent years. He was a British journalist, media personality, a satirist, a philosopher of sorts, a critic of various uh, religious practices and beliefs, outspoken in those regards. He lived through much change in his life when you think about his lifespan. He remembered World War I and vividly saw World War II unfold. And chaos, or seeming chaos, would be a good descriptor of what he witnessed over a lifetime. In his case, it drew him closer to Christ in a belief in God's sovereignty about all these things. But he also saw that the place of Christians would be difficult in this world, and he gives a bit of a, a realization that I hope helps us in light of what we're studying in Isaiah. So I close with his words. He wrote, as Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city. That crowns roll in the dust and every earthly kingdom must sometime flounder. Whereas we acknowledge a king that men did not crown and cannot dethrone. As we are citizens of a city of God, they did not build and they cannot destroy. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, as Samuel Stone penned so eloquently, and we'll sing in just a bit, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, the church of Jesus Christ awaits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be at last the church at rest. Lord, it is true indeed that our one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it is in him alone that we trust. He is the precious cornerstone himself. Through him we pray. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals to sing 347. The church's one foundation will stand as we prepare for communion. Verses 1 through 3 of 347. Let's stand as we sing.